Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, we question the state of our emergency housing after a TVNZ Sunday report detailed shocking treatment of tenants in Rotorua. We have an interview this morning with the minister in charge of the system. I'm always open. I don't think that we've got this perfect and I'm not going to sit here and say everything is perfect and nothing needs to change. Then an exclusive poll which reveals a clear frontrunner in the race to lead our second biggest city. It is a week since Kristen Hall and our colleagues at TVNZ Sunday broadcast their startling investigation into emergency housing in Rotorua. If you didn't watch the report, you should. You really should. It revealed emergency housing tenants who claim to have been intimidated and abused and have been forced to live in awful conditions in motels along Rotorua's so-called Golden Mile. But there's a dark side to this beautiful city. You've been here for a year and a half. Yep. You and four kids and a dog. There are major problems in these motels. They're waiting for someone to die. The first breakout I got was seeing a couple of guards rolling up in their black power patches. We've heard allegations of negligence, intimidation and abuse of power towards some of our most vulnerable. I'm getting pushed out of my house and there's nowhere for me to go carried out by agencies who are receiving millions of taxpayer dollars to look after them. The Sunday investigation raised several important big picture questions for the government that we want answered. Firstly, what oversight is in place to make sure our most vulnerable people aren't being taken advantage of? What protections are in place for our most vulnerable? And are taxpayers being ripped off as we fund emergency housing? The political blame game over the issues in the Sunday investigation comes down to two main arguments over the supply of and demand for state housing. National has pointed out that during Labor's time in government, the state housing list has exploded, which has caused a massive demand for emergency housing. From under 5,000, just before Labor took office in March 2017, the state housing waiting list has grown to almost 27,000 in March of this year. It's five times bigger. Now, some of that growth may be down to changes around eligibility, but Labor claims it's growing the state house supply faster than any government ever. Nationals last time in government, the total number of public houses dropped just over 2,000. Since Labor has been in power, the public housing supply has grown by more than 10,000. So then, with these questions, John Campbell sat down with Housing Minister Megan Woods. Have you seen the Sunday story? Yes, I have. And what did you make of it? Oh, look, I think it's incredibly confronting for anyone that um, is seeing homelessness, um, in many cases hopelessness, uh, for the first time in some cases as well, that these are not a situation that anyone, let alone our government, wants people to be living in. And that's exactly why we've got a programme of work, so that we can move beyond people being in emergency housing. Emergency housing was initially the National Party's response. I remember I was on Campbell Live at the time That's talking to right. Paul Bennett about it, and there was a sense that homelessness had to be addressed. That would have been roughly 14, 15, seven, eight years on. Is it working? 
what is working is that we are actually starting to rebuild our public housing stock, that you can have emergency housing, you can have transitional housing, but what you've got to have at the other end of that is more public housing. Okay, and I want to come back to that. I want to come yeah. back to that. And I, but I want to accept on the record that you are building public housing stock. But I want yeah. to talk about emergency yeah, housing. Sure. Is it working in the interim? So there are, there are two types of housing. There's emergency housing and there's transitional housing. The emergency housing you're talking about is when someone goes into MSD, they, says, they say, I've got nowhere to live. MSD say, here's some support. Go and book yourself into a motel. You go and book into a motel. What we also have is through the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development is contracted services. Absolutely. Where we can, so we talk about that being more um, transitional, but then we also have permanent transitional housing as well. So if you ask me, is transitional housing working? Yes, it is. Since we've come into government, there were 1,700 permanent transitional houses when we came into government. There's now 5,500. So as well as our public house build, we've also been building um, more transitional houses. These are places where people can rebuild their lives. What about the motels? What about and, we, and so we have also been, we've purchased some motels, not many. We've purchased them where they make good housing sense in the future. In some cases, Rotorua, for example, will be able to redevelop those sites in the future to put permanent uh, public houses on the site. Um, where we have contracted motels, we have full wraparound services. Um, that we're, This is actually not only about putting a roof over someone's head in many cases, it's actually about giving them the wraparound support, whether that be um, around some health support, whether it be getting into skills, into skills training and looking at what those long-term options around employment are. We do um, also put that support around the emergency housing clients as well with case management. But is it working? Um, I, was just going to, I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, is it working? Oh, look, it is, it is working as best it can. That this is, is, it, it, is it? Yes, it is, John. By, by whose measure? By, by the measure of the fact that there are an incredibly vulnerable group of people who otherwise were sleeping in cars and in the doorways of shops. And I think that is the thing. This is not a situation that anybody wants to be in. If I had a magic wand, we would have no one in emergency housing. That we would have them in permanent homes where they could be rebuilding their lives and making good, good memories and, and having hope for the future. But in terms of the situation that we're working through, is it working? It's working as best as it can. It's better than the alternative, isn't it? I think everybody accepts that. I think everybody accepts that. But being better than the alternative doesn't mean it's working. A and I wonder if we could and should be doing better in this space. So if, if you think about the things that we need to do better, and I'm always open, I don't think that we've got this perfect, and I'm not going to sit here and say everything is perfect and nothing needs to change, that this is a process where we are continually working with people on the ground to see what we can do better. Uh, so are you, are you yes, say that? No, we but, are. But I'll give you an example. Okay. I'll give you an example. So we had people living in cars. We decided that doing better was putting them into contracted motels and getting people into motels. We then found that actually some of the groups and people, and this was particularly the case in Rotorua, that the mix of people that we were bringing together in particular um, complexes wasn't really working. So we said, right, we need to contract and we need to say that we need to have um, a motel that's for people with kids, it's for families, it's not for single people to be mixed in there. So we've changed along the way there. Where we are finding that we can do things better, John, we are. Okay. And we're looking to make those changes. You talked about contracting Rotorua. I want to talk about visions of a helping hand as an emergency housing provider. Are you, do you have confidence in them? 
Um, I have confidence um, that, that we are addressing the issues um, that have been brought to light. And these haven't just Min been Minister, in the last week. I just saw the ball sail over my head into touch. Do you have confidence in this provider? Um, yes, I do. Um, that what I know is that there's been thousands of people that have been helped by Visions of a Helping Hand um, that have gone through Rotorua. Um, not just Visions either, there's other providers that Absolutely. operate in and Rotorua so how do you, as well. Uh, let's talk about, because there are lots of other providers in Rotorua, so there's where there's Emerge, there's LifeWise, there's Visions. How do, who determines who gets what? Who determines that Visions gets a contract? Sure, so anybody um, that is going to operate in this space needs to be registered um, as someone to, to provide that service. So all of those providers you've just rattled off there, they are. So there's, a, there's due diligence that is done, there's work that's done. How, how rigorous is it once they have the contracts? Oh, no, it is very, it is very Truly? rigorous. Truly? Yes, it so is. So let's talk about a motel that I went to in Auckland by Auckland Airport, which I found depressing and dispiriting and demoralising on behalf of the people living there. How often are MHUD, the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development, how often are their staff going in and just having a sniff? So was that a contracted motel yes. or was it one used for emergency special needs? No, contracted, MSD? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So what we do, they, they are registered. Some of them, that, you know, if they're not up to standard, then, then yes, we do absolutely need to exit. Let's bear in mind these when did are you last, When did you last walk away? When did you last say, you are not up for standard, you were... Well, actually, we haven't had to with our contracted motels because we have the right processes in place. Do you? Look, John, these were two- and three-star motels. Um, before they started. Let's be really clear on that in terms of the conditions. People have the right to a dignity of where they live. I absolutely stand by that. But yes, we do have processes in place to make sure that our clients are being kept safe and that is the utmost concern that we have. These are two or three star motels that, you, as you say, and I'm just quoting you back to you, that we are paying a million dollars a day for. So the, the rates when we're contracting are about $400, and, uh, $400 a week less than if we're going through the MSD emergency special needs. If we but take that, the but example, they're daily rates. The MSD no, emergency special needs. weekly. Oh, weekly. Yeah. But, but, yeah. What, but what we, it seems to me, and I was looking at Kristen's story on Sunday, and I was looking at the places I've been to, and I've visited a number of these places, we're paying $1,200, $1,400 a week for places... That aren't great. So, are we getting value for money? And are we giving people dignity for the money we're spending? Look, John, I can equally talk to some of the places that I've visited that have been contracted places. Um, one here in Christchurch, um, where it's um, for women and their children and meeting with some of the clients who are staying there who have talked to me about actually that this is transforming their lives that this is where they feel safe with their children. They've got out of some pretty dangerous situations that they were in. Their kids are at school, they're going to school, the women are in training, um, and they can see a pathway to permanent housing. So for some people it, it might be, and it is confronting, I go back, when you see, when you see what homelessness looks like in reality. Um, and if you see it for the first time, it is incredibly confronting. But if we are going to solve it, we do have to confront it. Okay. And we have to work with the people around all the things in their lives. And it's not just the housing. Let's, talk, let's talk about those women and children feeling safe. Mm -hmm. And yet in Kristen's story on Sunday, we saw women and children being evicted. Is it ever appropriate to evict people from this accommodation, women and children, yeah. and send them out to what? 
So we, we've had people on the ground in Rotorua this week um, working with a, um, a number of the, the issues that were raised in the story on Sunday night. This isn't new. We always have people on the ground and what we've done in Rotorua is actually bring together all the government agencies um, that do work together and um, have checked in. I think that one of the things working with Visions, that Visions probably are a bit stricter than some of the other providers. That's probably one of the things that's come to light this week. Are they too strict? Uh, Can you answer my question? In what circumstances is it it appropriate, and you've just talked about how good it is for mothers and children Mm. to have a safe place, in what circumstances is it appropriate to evict them from that safe place? So what I'm saying is that um, what we've seen is there's probably not as much consistency between providers, that Visions is probably a bit stricter in terms of drug and alcohol policy. I so appreciate you being with us, Mr but you're not answering my question. In what circumstances is it appropriate to evict women and children from these places? Well, we need to make sure that people are safe, but we need to make sure that everybody is safe in in the... in the complex that they so, are. So if they're being we evicted... Equally, can, we uh, equally get criticised for not moving people out. Um, and I'm not talking about the people no, that were no, in the I, show I, yeah, on Sunday. Yeah. I want to, yeah, I want to make that absolutely clear. But we'd equally get criticised if we don't move people out who are making the place unsafe for other people. So how do we get this right? Because... And I... I, I want to treat these people with respect, so but, we, but we are talking about people who are homeless, who are marginalised, who are alienated, who come from positions of no strength in many Absolutely. cases, and, and, and some of them are broken. Absolutely. And we need to look after them. Now, they are not going to behave in conventional, middle class, can you use a fish knife fashion, are they? From time to time, they're going to be tough tenants. Absolutely. So how do we look after them in those circumstances? And if you can't look after them, should you be getting the contracts? So in terms of how we look after them is making sure that we're not just seeing this as putting a roof over the head. So I visited um, a contracted motel in Rotorua where the, um, the provider has talked to me about the kinds of drawings that the kids were doing when they first came in to stay there that just showed absolute trauma. The, the pictures those kids were showing, the kind of trauma that they'd grown up. And one of the things that they've been monitoring is actually how those illustrations that those kids are sitting down and drawing, how they're changing. Um, that there's not so much um, anxiety and trauma being depicted, um, that there's actually hope starting to come into those kids' lives. I've talked to providers about how they're actually getting some of the tenants into jobs training, that they're getting skills training, they're actually entering full-time work. You've got to have that wraparound support. And, John, I want to reassure you that that is exactly what we are doing. I want to ask you, I just want a yes or no answer to this. Is it appropriate to evict women and children from those places? Uh, It's not appropriate that women and children don't have anywhere to go, but if they're not working in a particular complex, then in some circumstances, then yes, if it is for the safety of other tenants, then then that does also have to be taken into consideration because all of our clients deserve dignity and safety. And who's running the safety net? So, so if somebody is evicted, is there somebody from M, M. Hud saying, OK, I see you. Yes. Is this happening? Is this happening yes, rigorously? Is. OK. Yes, it is. Boy, we need to get this right. Absolutely. And, and if, if anyone is ever going to get this right, presumably it's a Labor government that stands for kindness and transformation, right? Are you getting it right? Are you doing as well as you had hoped when you became minister? So I think one of the things that we have to look at homelessness, that there's got to be short-term solutions, but they can only be that, and it's short-term solutions. 
you then have to look at what are we going to do to make that short-term solution the best it mm. possibly can. And let's be clear, mm. this is a really, really horrible situation these people are in. Nobody is pretending it's anything but. You've got to make sure you've got all the support then for them. But then you've also got to have a programme of work to, to bring on the long-term solutions. So when I look at Rotorua, um, the, and I've looked at it really closely, how did we get into this mess in this place in particular? And it's really clear. From 2013, 9,000 people moved into Rotorua. That's what the population grew by. There were 1,500 consents for houses granted in that area, many of those in the last couple of years, and they're only consents. They're not houses built. We simply do not have enough homes in Rotorua. So if I look at what we're doing right through from the fact that we've already built 210 state houses, another 300 are under construction or about to begin construction, and that's coming off there being 44 fewer state houses um, that when National went out of government than when they came into. So we saw a retraction in state housing over the nine years National were in government in Rotorua. But we didn't have enough houses in general that's why we've put um, over $100 million in infrastructure money into Rotorua so we can build more houses. John Campbell speaking with Housing Minister Megan Woods. We're back after the break. Hoki mai, welcome back. The debate over density is shaping up as a doozy. Consent numbers have significantly increased in recent years, but the government is shaping up for a scrap with the councils in some of our biggest cities over where housing should and shouldn't be intensified. Minister, you were talking about, I mean, ultimately this will be solved if we build more properties, right? Mm -hmm. How are you going with that? In Rotorua, well. What about generally, across the country? Uh, no, well, actually, I mean, we've got some commentators saying that actually um, the shortage of housing um, that we've experienced could be, uh, we could be closing in on that in as little as 12 months. So I think in terms of anyone who drives around Auckland or Christchurch or wherever just sees houses going up everywhere. What's, there your, are, what, what's your state housing waiting list? The state house waiting list is um, around 20-odd thousand. It's a lot of people, It is it? a lot of people, um, and I have absolutely... Um, no illusions uh, what a difficult hill that is to climb and why we're continuing to build state houses. We've, we've added 10,000 state houses since we've come into government. I want to put this in context. We have 70,000 state houses or public houses provided either by Kaingora or Chips in New Zealand. That's been built up since 1935. We've added 10,000 of those in the last five years since we've been in government. Some of this is about state housing and some of this is about the simple, you know, when I was a kid there was a sense, the, the sort of Kiwi dream was that you would own your own home and by and large you would, right? And, and, and that is much, much, much less likely and less the case now. So this is the national policy statement on urban development as a response to that. Mm -hmm. That's right. By God, some people don't like it, do they? Why don't they like it? Why don't local councils, we're in Christchurch, this is where your electorate is, why is there such concern? Look, I think um, change can be um, difficult for people, but what we've also had from councils um, consistently over the time we've been in government, and I remember it uh, before we were in government, councils saying that we needed to solve a housing crisis. We needed more affordable housing. If I just flip back to Rotorua for a moment, that um, in terms of the medium density rules that we brought in, the bipartisan deal that we had with National, Rotorua has actually asked for that to be applied to their area. It doesn't automatically apply 
by there, but they know if they're going to solve a housing crisis that actually they have to do things so, differently. So, so, uh, so is intensification the answer? Um, it is if you also want affordability. And that's one of the things that we're seeing. So around and, and so and so when and I just want to use Christchurch as an example, mm -hmm. and that's because this is where we are and this is where you live. Mm -hmm. If the councillors say we don't want this, and you have a, 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 one of the uh, the prospects for Mayor Phil Major uh, says the infrastructure um, simply can't cope with intensification. I mean, there's a really strong kickback against it. Is that NIMBYism? Well, I think in many cases, and one of the nim things... Nimby, nimbyism. Nimbyism, nimbyism. Yeah, nimbyism. Or actually, is it a reasonable uh, acknowledgement that the infrastructure in Christchurch it's, is exhausted? Um, well, actually, Christchurch is in a better state than yeah, some post cities with yeah, post-earthquake right, yeah, yeah. with its infrastructure. But um, there is a point, and a valid point, around the ability of infrastructure for cope, to cope, and that's exactly why we've put over $3 billion into the Housing Acceleration Fund, which is addressing issues of infrastructure. Um, a lot of is in brownfield so we can have infrastructure. The last time we had a real building boom in New Zealand was in the 1970s. It's the last time central government was directly funding infrastructure and it's why we're doing it again. We've got $3.4 billion going into infrastructure around New Zealand in our towns and cities so we can have more intensification but John, going back to affordability I can look at the proof points. So this year, we've seen rent increases in Auckland of 1.1%. Now, anyone who has been to Auckland or lives in Auckland knows just how much building is going on there. That when you have more supply coming into the market, we're not seeing rents increase. Okay. I compare so, so that, hang on, I compare that to other town, um, towns and cities in the North Island where it's 6.2% rent increases. So, so, so if people who are watching this, and I, and I suspect that the people who watch Q&A are in terms of household incomes, probably above average, although not all of them. But if they're watching that and they're thinking, I live in, and I hate this phrase, but a leafy suburb, it's just a lazy old phrase, but there's lots of villas here, and I don't want the villas to go and be replaced by four townhouses. What would you say to them? Well, I'd say, I'm a historian, that's my training. I love our built history. I don't want to see our cities devoid of history either. But I actually want these to be genuine heritage reasons why we are saving, not what we have historically had, where whole suburbs have just been, um, had a qualifying matter of being a heritage area. What we're saying to councils now, sure, we need to preserve our heritage. Heritage is important, but it actually has to be validated. It can't be just saying a whole, su a whole suburb's off limits and um, calling it carte blanche heritage. Let's just make sure it is for a genuine reason. You have to go, but I, but I want to ask you, five years into this government and two years into Labor having, for the first time since the advent of MMP and majority, you know, you're all on your own in there. Uh, are you solving the housing crisis? And I guess we've talked about two housing crises today. One is for people who are homeless, and the other is for people who feel like they might be renting for the rest of their lives. Are you saving it? And when will you be able to say, Aotearoa New Zealand, look what we've done? When will that point be? So are we solving it? Yes, we are. But solving it, not solved it. Um, that this housing crisis is decades in the making. I don't think that anybody who wants to fix that can deny this, that there's so many different parts of that. We need to look at it right through from homelessness. How do we make sure that all New Zealanders have a warm, dry, safe pl place to call home? We need to work right through to making sure that we've got, um, we've got secure tenure for people that rent, that they can genuinely make their home in a community and put down roots. We need to make sure that home ownership um, is still in 
the reach. That's why we're doing things like progressive home ownership, shared equity schemes. It's why we preserve with, uh, persevere with KiwiBuild, even though it's the easiest political hit in the world. But so easy, I didn't even have a go, Minister. That's Thanks right. for bringing but, it up. No, but you know we've got 1,300 people that now own a home because of KiwiBuild. So, so, somewhat less it. than the original target. Absolutely, yes. absolutely, and we're the first to admit that. But housing needs a set of policies that work together, that address everything right through from homelessness, through for um, making sure renters have good homes, to making sure that home ownership is still in the, in the reach of people, and making sure we've got enough houses in New Zealand. Let's not forget, when we came into government five years ago, there simply weren't enough houses. We now have bank economists saying we're closing in on that gap and that we're looking at having enough houses uh, for New Zealanders. It's extraordinary that I have to say that sentence, that that was one of the jobs that we had to do, but it is a job that we are doing. Megan Woods, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us here on Q&A. Thank you. John Campbell with Housing Minister Megan Woods. Again, if you haven't seen Kristen Hall's report, you can find Sunday on TVNZ+. In the meantime, if you want to contact Q&A, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, find us on Twitter or Facebook. After the break, we have exclusive poll results you're going to want to see in the race to become the mayor of New Zealand's second biggest city. Across Aotearoa, voting papers are about to be sent out for this year's local body elections. And over the next few weeks on Q&A, we're going to take a look at the mayoral contests in our biggest cities. We are starting this week in New Zealand's second biggest city, Christchurch, where for the first time in nine years, Tahi is set to have a new mayor. Tahi Christchurch, the O3. After the trauma, destruction, loss and human exodus that followed the 2011 earthquake, there is a sense among many of the city's residents that Christchurch has turned a corner of sorts. It's on the rise, both figuratively and literally. Parts of the CBD that for years were languishing have been transformed. The population's growing and many of the debates that'll decide the local election next month are those of a growing, thriving city. Construction has already begun on Tekaha, Christchurch's controversial new stadium. It'll cost ratepayers $683 million. Some residents think it's too expensive to justify, and rates are forecast to substantially increase. But the council signed it off in July. Another issue central to the local election is infrastructure funding in the city. Since the earthquakes, Christchurch has spread away from the hammered eastern suburbs and into satellite towns north and west of the city. It makes transport policy critical and contentious. Yes, despite the fact it's so flat, not everyone in Christchurch wants more cycleways. For the local council, this election represents a big shift. After three terms, Leanne Dalzell is standing down as mayor, but whoever takes over will inherit a council whose reputation is faltering. According to exclusive Q&A polling this week, a majority of the city's residents who responded said they don't have confidence in the council to meet the needs of its residents. So, how is the race shaping up? Q&A commissioned Kantar to poll 500 voters in Christchurch and the results were pretty emphatic. 
Of voters who responded, 58% said they'll vote for current city councillor and businessman Phil Major as the city's next mayor. That's more than twice the support of the candidate in second place, the former head of the Canterbury District Health Board, David Mates, who scored 26%. And coming in third, well off the pace, is the Wizard, who scored 5%. Now, it is really important to note, of the 500 people who were polled, 38% say they didn't know who they'll vote for, don't plan to vote, or refuse to say. And that is a huge slab of people. So, I went to Christchurch and sat down with the two leading candidates, Phil Major and David Mates, and I started by questioning Phil Major, who, according to our poll, is the overwhelming favourite at this stage. Is this race over? <laughs> Absolutely not. I um, came out of the blocks in um, August last year and surrounded myself with a lot of people over the, over the months. People have popped up out of the woodwork. I'm surrounded by a fantastic team, but I know that if I take my foot off the throttle, there's someone snapping at my heels, so you've got to head down and into it. Are you snapping at his heels? Absolutely. I'm not surprised with the uh, poll results. And when you've got 38% that uh, have not responded or indicated where they are, I think gives a sense of a lot of people still waiting to um, explore what has been offered and to make decisions and choices. Why aren't you surprised at the results? Uh, I think, you know, as Phil said, he's been campaigning for um, out over a year and I've been much later into the race and uh, again just building the uh, profile and we've got a campaign that is actually building momentum. Uh, so I'm not surprised with the results. And uh, it's matching, um, yeah, kind of certainly the feedback I'm getting from the, on the ground is every session um, spending with the community, people are, get, are, are really thoughtful, they're interested and uh, wanting to really engage in this election. I want to start off by talking about trust. And our poll shows that only a third of Christchurch voters trust the council to meet their needs and almost half don't trust the council. So David, I'll start with you. you. You left the Canterbury District Health Board after a series of high-level disagreements. You personally have no experience in council. How is that a recipe for rebuilding trust? I think it's a um, really good asset not to be going into local government without local government experience. So I'm not taking in the baggage um, that exists there and also the um, loss of trust that this community has uh, demonstrated and reflected in polls um, with its council. And the council has lost a lot of relevance uh, with that. The flip side of that is my experience with the District Health Board absolutely built a very trusted environment where a community trusted um, its health services based on the way that we went about engaging with communities and involving a range of health professionals, NGOs and other parts of the sector in co-designing and creating the future. How did your departure from the District Health Board affect that trust? Um, can't really comment on that other than the fact that uh, it was unusual for someone that had led an organisation for over a decade to um, be embarrassed by Guard of Honour with uh, both staff and uh, members of the community, just reflecting that this was an organisation that had a massive impact on the wellbeing of this community through some very, very challenging times. Phil, your number one campaign priority is to restore trust in council, but emails released under the OIA this week show you and two other councillors sought to arrange a private dinner with the council's chief executive before the election. At the same time, as you are advocating for transparency, you're seeking private meetings with the council's top executive. So 
Why should voters trust you? The, the, there was a meeting jacked up, which I never saw, of um, the email that went out, but then we meet, went and met um, the chief executive and all of the executive leadership team, because the way it was done to me, like, Phil, you could be mayor. What are your dreams and aspirations? What would you like to put forward to us? The wizard was going to be asked. I think everyone was asked, and I'm not sure, I don't know if David did or not, but everyone's been asked to go along and say, if you are, because what happened three years ago when I started, uh, the chief executive started two days before me. I started with, along with another group of new people, and we sort of sat round for sat round, sat round for two two months, not really getting our head into it. The chief executive has said we haven't got time for that. Whoever gets in, and it, but whoever it is, we want to know what you want to do, so we can hit the ground running, so we're not wasting any time. And that, so that's what the meeting was jacked up. For. So, so my understanding is that your fellow councillor and your political ally Jamie Goff mm -hmm. suggested. Uh, that you go and meet with the council's chief executive and that, that was quite separate to an email from the council chief executive that subsequently went out to all candidates inviting them to meeting. So you actually sought the meeting rather than waiting for an invitation from the council's chief executive. I went, I went to the meeting and from what I understand... It's before the, that meeting, Yes, though. from what I understand, the invites, from one particular reason or another, went out the next day to the others. You are correct in what you say. Is that, is that appropriate? I don't, think, I don't know. I think we were just the first cab off the rank and whether I think it was, um, not hiding behind anything, um, it said administration of error, that it wasn't sent out in time, but take that as you will. I know that as part of that email, uh, Jamie Goff suggested that you place a sportsman bet or light wage on the election results. Have you bet on the results? No, no, and, and I was not aware of that email when I went and met with the chief executive, and I wouldn't say that's the cleverest thing that we've done, that people have done. I, th I think it matches the, the, you know, kind of the loss of trust and confidence of the community in the way that the council is sometimes behaving. It's, it's the lack of transparency, I think, goes to sometimes the core and heart of actually what communities are really struggling to understand. Yeah. I want to talk about Takaha. According to our poll, 47% of voters say the $683 million stadium represents good value for money. 41% say it doesn't represent good value for money. Now, Phil, you have pledged to keep rates increases to between 3 and 4%. How do you square that circle? Yeah, you do. I do not want Takaha, the stadium, to be a burden on our ratepayers. Right? We can now go ahead with certainty to our neighbours because over the last nine years, eight years, whatever, we haven't said we're going to build it. We're now building it so we can go out and approach our neighbours with confidence before we couldn't. The other thing is too that it's not a Christchurch stadium in my view, it's a Canterbury stadium. Now we've got the Canterbury Museum which is rated through the whole of Canterbury because Canterbury are going to get the benefit of this stadium. So I feel we need to talk to one our neighbours but also ECAN because then everyone in Canterbury can contribute just a tiny bit because there's a lot of people to the um, running of the stadium. But, but why, would, why would Selwyn or Waimakariri support it? They don't have to. The Christchurch City Council is the one that signed the deal. That's correct, they don't have to but we've got to go out. I've, I've got an number of people that have contacted me, Darfield, ring me up and say, just tell us where to put the money and we'll, um, we'll send it, sort of thing. Would you please ask us. So that's not probably um, everyone's opinion, but we've got to go out and ask and, and push it forward. David, you advocated to pause stadium construction and clearly the initial work has begun for Takaha. So if voters support you, 
and services aren't cut, how much will rates increase on your watch? So as, as a son of an All Black, I am absolutely delighted and, and, and have been very supportive of the stadium. Why I'd suggested pausing is unless the council could come up with actually the certainty of what it was going to cost and deliverables, then it had no other choice but to pause. So unless they could meet those conditions, um, that was the rationale for, uh, for that. It was never about not delivering the stadium. In fact, it beggars belief that conversations have only just started happening with neighbouring councils because this was always going to be a regional stadium and I'd be pretty frustrated if I was a member of the Waimakariri or Selwyn um, councils, then been saying, Christchurch, we've now got a problem, can you bail us out? Because I'd know how I'd respond if I was a member of the, um, you know, member of the how would you those communities. In terms of actually... You would, you, would you bail Christchurch? No. You'd be coming from the basis of actually, we should have been involved in the conversations right at the start. These are conversations that should have been happening six, seven years ago. And it just, I, I find it really difficult to understand why those weren't happening. The challenge that the city's now got is it has now got a, um, a fixed price contract. The challenge is going to be is delivering within that envelope. And we've got to be really thoughtful about we cannot have these big infrastructure projects just falling on ratepayers in the traditional way. So we need to look at different vehicles of, of how funding might happen. And that's where things like through Christchurch City Holdings, leveraging off some of the balance sheets uh, in there, provide alternative pathways to fund a stadium mm. that is not about having to put it on to rates. Because actually we've got a community saying, we're paying too much in rates already, and we can't continue just to have them increasing to pay for big projects like this. Okay. And the other bit is we cannot then cut other services for communities, right. across the communities. So, okay, so the stadium's $683 million. Of that, how much should ratepayers be responsible for? Oh, um, with, you know, within that, I think the expectation that it was going to be uh, around about $200 million, then with the, um, the um, government contribution. Right. So there's, about a, there's the additional $200 million right. that we need to be really thoughtful about where and how that might be handled. Okay, so, so if $200 million comes from a ratepayer base and you're determined not to cut services, how much will rates increase on your watch? Oh, look, I think anyone that gives you a, an accurate figure on that is misleading, given all of the um, yeah the pressures and, and impacts um, that are happening around the um, around the world. What we have to be able to do, and I think the council has really struggled with us, mm. is to demonstrate value for money for spend that is happening. Mm. Um, you know, already there's a lot of improved contra uh, you know, kind of capital projects that haven't started, right. even though they have been approved. Right. Is it realistic to expect though that ratepayers could be facing a double-digit rate rise? Oh, look, we, need, we need to be smarter than that because um, communities cannot continue just to have their rates going up to support big projects like this. And that's where I say we need to find a different vehicle mm. for how we're going to support So, so I'll just dig in one more time. So, so on your watch, if you are mayor, Christchurch ratepayers will not see double-digit rates rises and Tikaha will be delivered using those other funding vehicles. I think that would be a fair assumption to make. Phil, what are you going to cut? What are we going to cut? One of the things is that we shouldn't just... It is a multi-use arena. It's a stadium, and everyone calls it a stadium. Multi-use arena, one of the things that is 
that I wasn't even thinking about is a thing called e-games. Now I'm hearing that 25,000 people, if you've got a roof stadium, descend on a place for a week and, and spend money. And, and um, concerts and, and stuff like that. So it's not, it's not all It's not just that. the Crusaders winning another title, yeah. No. And Although you'll take that as well, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure, and, and welcome to the mainland. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we, we've got lots of other things that we can do yeah. to, to pull levers. We have, even though people say, oh, you're going to sell all the, all the assets. No. We have got a lot of assets that are of actually not a lot of use to us. Right. We've, so, sorry, we've sold $40 million worth of assets last year of land assets, and it's only only 1% of our land's holdings. And it's all stuff that's really neither use nor ornament. We don't miss it, but not the sewer. I saw that you, you said, quote, we're spending far too much on items that are not improving resident satisfaction. You said you're going to go through council budgets line by line to identify wasteful spending, and you're guaranteeing to keep rates rises to between 3 and 4%. So I want to know what you've identified. What You're going to have to cut something, because you're not going to have an e-games tournament until Takaha is oh, built. No, that's correct, in four, in four years' time. There is all sorts of things on that. We, we started... Um, when I first got into council, it was my first LTP, and that was an exciting six months of my life. Um, we started on... Uh, we had every project line by line by line, mm. and we went down and we, they said, when we get to 39 million savings, we've made it. We'd only got halfway down the list, and oh, we made 39 million. Sorry, did I say yes, that? Yes. 39 million savings, so we stopped. We could have gone a lot further. There's a lot of stuff there that... Out of 100, if it's 100, it has to happen. Die in a ditch, it has to happen. But if it's below 30, does it matter? So go down line by line. There's a number of things so in there. Could you give me, a, give me an example? Um, take the likes of around the... Around, well, Old Orange Theory Stadium is worth around about 35 or $40 million. So it's five hectares of land. There's enough land there to build 270 units, which will all pay... $30,000 each in development lately. Then they will also then pay $5,000 a year in rates. You've also got um, the streets around the stadium, which have been mooted at being $21 million, $24 million worth of money. We don't need to spend that just yet. I, as a rate payer, I'd much rather drive down the road as it is, and they're good, there's one way street that way, one way street that way, works really good. Drive around the streets as they are and use that 24 million towards the stadium and have less borrowings on the stadium. And there's, there's, there's lots of other little areas as well. So that's one of the things I find really challenging is having signed off a big stadium, then to say actually there's all this land that is going to be sold off to fund that. We have housing crises. Um, the sort of land like Orange Theory, uh, we need to be thinking more creatively about what the role of the council is in terms of enabling social housing through housing trusts and others to actually develop and build those, um, you know, kind of, uh, those properties. In terms of actually not just putting it to property developers, but in fact creating a disruptive market that is actually going to provide opportunities for those uh, to get into either social housing or low-cost housing. You know, we had 500 kids staying in motels last night and 2,500 people waiting for um, social housing. We cannot just make random decisions to say, look, there's a block of land, let's sell it off, and that's, yeah. going, to that's going to be the stadium. They are making trade-offs. Uh, uh, yeah, kind of the other parts of our community that do need to be supported 
are going to miss out if we take that approach. I mean, this is an important policy difference. This is, yeah, sorry, Phil. Yeah, sorry, but yes, we're getting rid of the land. We'll get the money for the land, but it will have 275 units of some might be social housing, some might be developers. Doesn't matter. They can have a have a hectare each. It doesn't matter. But the best thing about it is it's all very close to Rickerton Road, and they can walk to Rickerton Road, get on a bus, yeah. get into town. Like I said, I've got to move on. But yeah, I mean, sorry. this is a good. No, this is a good. You know, it's a good policy. And, and, and I think it's difference. a really good example yeah. where Phil and I have very different approaches to how to solve that. Yeah, you uh, do. And um, it is, and, and I think that's part of the beauty of an election, people making choices on that. Yeah. There's one more poll result I want to throw to both of you. So we'll have a look at this. Almost two thirds of residents we surveyed oppose giving more road space to cycleways. So just 29% of residents support more space for bike lanes. And the thing about Christchurch, and I know this given I was born and bred here, is it's very, very flat and in the eyes of many is ideally suited to greater cycling infrastructure. So bike lanes represent less than 1% of council spending. If more people on bikes means more space for cars, should the council be investing more in cycleways, Phil? I believe we, we got given 82 million, just shovel-ready stuff, $82 million by the government, thank you very much, that's great. No ratepayer money at all to that, as well as other contributions that they make on other things. So it's very, very much appreciated. But we, we $82 million has been spent in such a way we could have got a lot further with the $82 million. All the cyclist wants to do is ride on somewhere flat and smooth and safe with a curb either side, but some of the way we're spending it, it's at the ire of shopkeepers, people who used to park their car there, or, or the motorist. The other thing we need to do is also, if you're not riding your bike, if you can get on a bus, we have got buses that are running around quite empty. The main thing is that, I, that the thing that has really made me happy is that um, ECAN have bought out the $2 bus fare. $2 for two miles or 200 kilometres, two bucks, and if you're under 15, it's $1. If we, that comes in in January, if that works as well as I hope it will, people, more people will get on the bus, there'll be less cars, but also other people will get on, on push bikes as well. It, it just, there's just too many people in the boundary to boundary bit. There's roads, there's cars, buses, bikes, pedestrians. It's yeah. all, we're all competing for the same bit, so we've got to tidy it up a bit. I think we've, <clears throat> we haven't got an integrated transport plan that's making sense to this community. So we're getting into these stupid arguments about cycleways versus cars public transport uh, versus other components. The thing that sits underneath that is it's not making sense to a community. Mm. And so I think we're having the wrong argument in the, in the debate. The other bit is actually, there's a, when people get polarised, the amount of misinformation that starts flying around starts distorting what's uh, really happening. And you kind of look at 0.07% uh, of the uh, ratepayers, of, of rates, is currently going into cycleways. Um, the term over-engineered, because actually when you look at a lot of the cycleways, there's curbs, there's pipe, there are intersections there are plantings and plantings that are all being done. And I think people are missing the, you know, kind of are not understanding the explanation that's been given that it's actually improving the whole lot. And I think there is a better understanding that needs to happen. But sitting behind that is actually the engagement with some of the communities has not been as good as what it needs to be. And when you're not engaged as a community, you tend to react. And I think we've had some really good examples where some of the engagement has been less than optimal. I know the uh, city's draft transport plan has been publicised and uh, given the 
satellite towns that have popped up over the last couple of years and that massive development out west and um, north of the city, this is going to be something Council will be considering over the next couple of years. We're just running out of time, so I thought uh, I should throw it over to each of you to paint me a bit of a picture. The thing about our electoral cycles is they're over in a heartbeat and there's only so much any one Mayor or Council can achieve in three years' time. So, if you are Mayor, paint me a picture of how Christchurch will be different three years from now. And David, maybe you can go first. So, uh, yeah, looking to see a confident, vibrant and forward-focused uh, city that's a seen as a climate leader and also a centre of innovation in New Zealand. And, you know, as you know, Jack, Christchurch population is pretty vibrant, innovative and actually really pragmatic about what uh, can happen. We just need a council that's actually going to enable that to happen. Phil. I want to make Christchurch an even better place to live. It's really good at the moment. We've got people coming down from Auckland and Wellington, which is keeping our, our system alive. But if, if we had it, the, I want it to be the best place to live, work, play and invest in the country. Now, with all, we're right on the cusp of greatness because we've got all these new buildings, and you could say thanks to the earthquake, but that's not a very <laughs> nice way to do it. But we've got all these new buildings with sports arenas, Nipuna Wai, um, the town hall, Convention Centre, Stadium, all that National Swimming Sports, Hagley Cricket Oval, and we are that far off being able to have the um, Commonwealth Games here in about 5, 10, 15 years or whatever because it won't break this city to do it. And I think we should aim towards that because when we had the Commonwealth Games in, in, in 1974, over the road from where I used to live, that was the best time of anyone's life in Christchurch was great. And if we can emulate that back, because we've got all this new stuff, we've got new hotels, people to stay, it's going to be brilliant. So that's what I'm really wanting to get done. I know it's a busy few weeks ahead for the both of you. Thank you very much <laughs> for giving us your time and good luck. Thank, Thank you very much, mate. Christchurch mayoral candidates Phil Major and David Mates. The methodology for that poll will be available on the One News website. Stay with us. Q&A's back after the break. Welcome back. We're almost done for today, but before we leave you this morning, we want to cover off the developments from the UK overnight. Charles III has been formally proclaimed king, while his sons have appeared together in public in a deliberate display of unity. Well, it was certainly quite remarkable. We were down here today with the thousands as they thronged forwards to lay flowers down here and messages uh, remembering the Queen. And then all of a sudden the barriers started to go up and it became obvious that something was going to happen. And we were put in a bit of a press pen and we all understood that it was going to be the newly titled Prince and Princess of Wales were going to be coming to do a walkabout. And of course we waited and waited and waited and it just kept getting extended and extended. And all of a sudden the car pulls up and out walks Prince Harry. He was the first person to hop out of the car and you could audibly hear the gasps among the crowd as he hops out, then Prince William hops out uh, and both of their wives and there was just shock rippling through the press area and also you could hear it as well in the audience and so the crowds were all kept at bay while the two couples came in. They were able to look closely at the flowers. They were able to uh, read the messages that have been left here. They stuck initially to themselves in their own couple.
couples, Prince Harry and Meghan, his wife, were holding hands. And then all of a sudden they started interacting and talking about some of the messages that they were reading, pointing at some of the pictures uh, that are down here. And it did seem very collegial between them. They then went over and looked at another bunch of flowers. I've got to say, this is only a small portion of the flowers that are outside Windsor Castle at the moment. And then they headed over towards the waiting crowds. And applause just ripped out um, in the crowd as people were just so excited to see them. Uh, and each couple took a side each and they went down uh, shaking hands and greeting mourners. And I spoke to a couple of them afterwards, asking them what it was like. I mean, people were just shocked, first of all, to see the brothers together, telling me that they feel that this maybe shows that they've put the past behind them, that perhaps in sad times something really positive might come out of this. There might be unity among the family together together again, which of course is what the Queen would always have wished for. Tēnā koe mai, thanks for being with us. Talk us through the proclamation proceedings that have taken place. Good morning, yes, well the proclamation is basically a process where uh, Prince Charles, well actually King Charles, is proclaimed as King officially. Now it's one of those funny things where he actually became King Charles the moment the Queen took her last breath because technically the throne is always occupied, but this process must happen 24 hours after the Queen passes away but because they announced that she passed away so late in the evening it needed to be pushed out by an extra day and historically this time of a proclamation where they do a declaration and an oath as well and actually because we're in modern times as well it was one of the first times this proclamation has been televised. It was mainly of people, of officials, of Privy Council members. We saw um, Liz Truss as well as the other um, top ministers like Boris Johnson there as well. But I think like what was interesting to note is despite the pompousness and, and the ceremony that we saw inside, it was what was happening outside that felt the most fascinating. We were standing outside as the crowds were gathering and, and, and lots of those people were actually coming here to Buckingham Palace to pay tribute to the Queen because St James Palace where the proclamation happened is just round the corner and you have to pass it to come through Buckingham Palace. So lots of people didn't know what was going on. You could hear people going, why are we all here? What's happening? And as people started to find out, you could feel a lift and a buzz of excitement. Something is happening here. And as the proclamation happened, as um, God Save the King was sung out, it was uh, inside, it was also sung outside. And as cheers were happening inside, they were also happening outside. And so the public outside were reflecting what uh, the pompousness and the ceremony inside, but in a more, um, I guess, heartfelt way. It is my most sorrowful duty to announce to you the death of my beloved mother, the Queen. I know how deeply you, the entire nation, and I think I may say the whole world, sympathise with me in the irreparable loss we've all suffered. My mother's reign was unequalled in its duration, its dedication and its devotion. Even as we grieve, we give thanks for this most faithful life. I am deeply aware of this great inheritance and of the duties and heavy responsibilities of sovereignty which have now passed to me. In taking up these responsibilities, I shall strive to follow the inspiring example I have been set in upholding constitutional government and to seek the peace
harmony and prosperity of the peoples of these islands and of the Commonwealth realms and territories throughout the world. And in carrying out the heavy task that has been laid upon me and to which I now dedicate what remains to me of my life, I pray for the guidance and help of Almighty God. Concerning the security of the Church of Scotland... The King took a centuries-old oath to preserve the position of the Church of Scotland. I, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of my other realms and territories, King, defender of the faith, do faithfully promise and swear that I shall inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion as established by the laws made in Scotland. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Hip, hip. Hooray. Hip, hip. Hooray. Hip, hip. Formal proclamation there of King Charles III. Kumatu, that is Q&A for this week. Next up, Marae has a special programme. We will bring you New Zealand's proclamation of the accession live as part of a One News special beginning at midday today. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Hey Teira Wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on air.